Before we open the scriptures this morning to our our sermon of the day, I'd like to read one verse from Romans chapter 15, verse 4. It is speaking of the Old Testament from which we're about to read. Romans 15, verse 4. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Let's pray one more time as we turn our minds and eyes and and hearts to the Word of God. Our Father, these scriptures are the Word of God, inspired by God and profitable for correction, for reproof, for teaching, for training in righteousness. And so, Lord, we humbly submit ourselves to your Word. Give us hearts to hear what it says, not what we want it to say. Give us minds that say, yes, Lord. Give us hands and feet that are willing and ready to do what your word instructs us. For your glory and for your kingdom, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Almost every product we buy these days comes with warning labels and instructions. But what happens if we ignore... The warning labels, the instructions. Now, some of these warning labels can be a little bit silly. I came across one this week which says, Do not iron clothes while wearing them. (laughs) That's probably not a good idea. On a laundromat washing machine, someone spotted this warning. Do not put any person in this washing machine. (laughs) I get so dizzy on the spin cycle. Uh, On the package of a toaster. We find this warning. Do not use toaster while bathing. <laughs> that will not end well. <laughs> Don't do that. Those are, those are all a little bit silly, but nevertheless, they are genuine product warnings. And of course, some are more serious. Commonly found on medications is this warning. Do not drive or operate machinery after taking this medication. If you read the the manual for your car, you'll find an instruction to change the oil every 3,000 miles. And yes, you may get away with pushing those oil changes a little bit beyond the manufacturer's recommendation. But if you neglect to change the oil in your car, someday, suddenly, your engine will freeze up. Things will not go well when we ignore the manufacturer's instructions. My favorite example was found in the manual for a chainsaw. It said this, do not hold the wrong end of the chainsaw. (laughs) That's good advice for life. Do not hold the wrong end of the chainsaw. Would you please turn to Judges chapter 21. The book of Judges is the seventh book in the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the five books of Moses, then Joshua and Judges. We're going to start by looking at the last verse of the last chapter of the book of Judges. Next Sunday, we're going to begin a four-week series from the little book of Ruth, which comes on the next page, right after Judges. So Andy asked me this morning to preach a message on the whole book of Judges in order to set the table 
for the book of Ruth. The events in Ruth happened during the time of the judges. So judges gives us the context. Judges gives us the setting. Judges gives us the culture for the book of Ruth. Now, Judges has 21 chapters and a little bit over 600 verses, so we might be here a while this morning. I hope you brought your lunch. Just kidding. Obviously, I'll do a lot of summarizing, but look, please, at the last verse of the last chapter. Judges 21, verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Those words are repeated word for word in Judges 17.6, and they summarize the whole book. The book of Judges shows us what happens when we ignore the maker's instructions, and instead, everyone does what is right in his or her own eyes. Judges shows us the inevitable and sad consequences when we ignore the word of God and all its precepts and instructions. And so my main thought for today is simply this. When God's instructions are rejected and ignored, breakdown is inevitable. I'll say that again. When God's instructions are rejected and ignored, breakdown is inevitable. Ignoring God's instructions is like trying to live life holding the wrong end of the chainsaw. You will get hurt. Now, when we hear the word judge, we think of a man or a woman wearing a long black robe, sitting in a courtroom, holding a gavel. We think of Judge Judy presiding over a trial, a judge sentencing a guilty person to prison. That's not what the biblical judges did. This book tells the story of 12 judges who are the saviors, the deliverers, the rescuers of the nation of Israel, saving God's people from their own slide into ungodliness and from oppression from very repressive enemies. This book tells the stories of judges like Gideon and Samson or Deborah or Ehud, the left-handed judge. And each of these judges rescued Israel from a time of great sin and great oppression. So the, the judges are saviors. They are deliverers. They are rescuers. And we will see the main idea of this book in, in two main sections. The book breaks down to two main sections. The cycles of the judges and the scenes from the judges. Chapters 1 and 2 are introduction. And then chapters 3 through 16, there are seven distinct cycles, each following the same pattern. Every cycle begins with a rebellion against God. Now, sin always has consequences. Always. And so this rebellion against God in every cycle leads to the rod of discipline. As God disciplines the nation by giving them into the hands of their enemies to bring them in every cycle to a point of repentance. That's the third step in every cycle. The rod produces repentance as the people cry out to God for deliverance. And then this repentance leads to a season of rest and restoration as God raises up a judge to rescue his people in response to their cry 
for deliverance. And so seven cycles with this pattern in every one of them. Rebellion, the rod of discipline, repentance, rest, and restoration. But finally, during these seasons of rest and restoration, the people eventually forget God and the cycle starts all over again. Some of these cycles are described in just a few verses. Some of them last for several chapters, but it's always the same pattern. Let's look at one cycle and see what lessons we can learn from it. Please turn to Judges chapter 3, verse 1, and follow along as I'll read through verse 11. Judges 3, beginning at verse 1. Now these are the nations which the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all who had not experienced any of the wars of Canaan. Only in order that the generations of the sons of Israel might be taught war. Those who had not experienced it formerly. These nations are the five lords of the Philistines, and all the Canaanites, and the Sidonians, and the Hivites, who lived in Mount Lebanon, from Mount Baal Hermon, as far as Lebo Hamath. And they were for testing Israel to find out if they would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he had commanded their fathers through Moses. And the sons of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And they took their daughters for themselves as wives, and they gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. And the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherah. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishathayim, king of Mesopotamia. And the sons of Israel served Cushan Rishathayim eight years. And when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the sons of Israel to deliver them. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. And the spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel. When he went out to war, the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, so that he prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim. Then the land had rest forty years. And Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. Well, As we see here, each cycle begins with a rebellion against God in his ways, as in verses 6 and 7. And and notice there in verse 7 in particular, it says the people forgot the Lord their God. Think about that. That's an amazing statement. They forgot God. This is not some accident like you forget where you left your car keys. They thought God was no longer relevant to them. And so they pushed him out of mind and out of life. They forgot God. I fear that a very similar thing is happening today in our nation, in our culture. We are systematically pushing God out of mind and out of life. That will not end well. Keep a finger in Judges 3 and look ahead to Judges 8. Verses 33 and 34. This is describing the same idea in the actually the fifth cycle of these seven cycles. Judges 8, 33 and 34. And then it came about 
as soon as Gideon was dead, that the sons of Israel again played the harlot with the Baals and made Baal Berith their god. Thus the sons of Israel, here it comes, did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from their hands of their enemies on every side. So often, rebellion against God in their time and in ours begins with a simple act of forgetting God, not remembering all that he has done, pushing God out of mind and out of life. This is why Thanksgiving is so important. You know, Thanksgiving is good every day, not just on the fourth Thursday in November, because giving thanks helps us to think about God and what God has done for us and to remember all the great acts of God in our lives. Have you ever noticed how the words think and thank are so similar? They're only different by that one little vowel in the middle, and that is not an accident. To be thankful, we have to be thankful. We have to think about God. We have to remember what God has done. Well, back to Judges chapter 3. In Judges, this rebellion against God is almost always associated with idolatry. As the, the people push aside the Lord their God, something will always come in to fill that gap. And it's the worship of false gods like Baal and the Asheroth, as mentioned in Judges 3.7. Now, I suspect that none of you here today know anyone who worships Baal or the Asheroth. But the underlying problem, the exact same problem, is still with us today. In the Canaanite pantheon, the Canaanite pantheon, Baal was the god who controlled the rain and the storms. And in that relatively dry land, rain was so important for agriculture that Baal became known as the god of agriculture. If you wanted a good harvest, you offered sacrifices to Baal so that he would water the land and the crops would grow. The Asheroth were these idols, often tall poles, that were devoted to the goddess Asherah, the goddess of fertility. In exchange for worship, Asherah would grant fertility to man, to beasts, and to crops. If you wanted to have lots of children, which was a really good thing in those days, you gave a sacrifice to Asherah that she might give you fertility. If you wanted your sheep and your goats to reproduce well, give a sacrifice to Asherah that she'll grant them fertility. If you want your crops to pollinate, give a sacrifice to Asherah that she will grant your crops fertility. The common thread with both these gods is that people began to worship for their own prosperity. The first commandment is you shall have no other gods before me. But when my personal prosperity, my success, becomes more important to me than obedience to God's word and the worship of the one true God, then I am sinning in the same way as the ancient Israelites. I am worshiping the gods of Baal and the Asheroth and Mammon, which is the god of money. Notice also that this false religion, these false gods, this religion is always based on works. It is what you can do, what you can give, 
what you can sacrifice to earn the favor and the blessing of the gods. You give a sacrifice, your works, you get a blessing back in exchange. That is exactly the opposite of our Christian faith, which is based on grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not as a result of works. Folks, God is not a candy machine in which you drop your coins of worship in order to get back your reward. But there are churches and pastors today who are reducing God to little more than a candy machine. Worship him in this way, the way we tell you that you may be rich and prosper. That is a false works-based religion. So the cycle begins with rebellion against God. And rebellion against God leads to the rod of discipline. The second step in the cycle, you can see it there in Judges 3.8. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the sons of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim, Eight years. This King Kushan's second name can be translated Kushan the Archvillain. That's what Rishathaim means. means the Archvillain. We're, we're not given any graphic details about how evil, cruel, and wicked this man was, but we, we have a little hint. He's Kushan the Archvillain. But notice... Even in this season, this painful season of serving a wicked foreign king, an arch-villain, we see God's sovereignty. Because it says, he, that is the Lord, sold them into the hands of Cushan. Just as we saw in our study of Genesis through the lives of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, even when terrible, horrible things happened, God was always sovereignly at work. Here we see the same thing in the book of Judges. Glance ahead to Judges 3.12, the start of the next cycle. Judges 3 verse 12. Now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done evil. Who strengthened this next wicked foreign king, Eglon, against them? The Lord strengthened Eglon. You see, again, God is sovereignly working. Look at Judges 4, verse 1, the start of the next cycle. Then the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. Verse 2, and the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who who reigned in Hazar. The Lord did it. God did it. Judges 6.1. The start of yet another cycle with a, a judge we know well, Gideon. Then the sons of Israel again did eat what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hands of Midian several seven years. In each cycle, the sin is the same. The basic consequence is the same. The oppressor is different, but the same sovereignty of God is at work. The Lord sold them 
The Lord gave them. The Lord strengthened this foreign king. It was never an accident of history. There's some good lessons to consider at this point. First lesson. Sin always has consequences. You will not escape the consequences of your sin, and neither will I. You can be sure your sin will find you out. When we disobey the Maker's instructions, life will not go well. Second lesson. The seeds of Israel's decline always began with spiritual apostasy. Problems begin when we abandon the one true God for gods of our own making. In a very fine commentary on the book of Judges, David Jackman writes this. Once the Lord was displaced, the nation began to fall apart, as will the church which dethrones Christ. Christ. Personal interests predominated and jealousies grew. Bitter hostilities between warring tribes developed and the very concept of the nation as a unity was threatened. That's what comes from a spiritual failure. The very nation was threatened and almost destroyed. Practical lesson three. Whenever God is left behind, a false religion a religion of mankind's own making, a religion based on works, will come in to fill the empty spots. Practical lesson four. Even in his discipline and his anger, God always has a loving purpose. God always has a loving purpose. Hebrews 12, as Jake read earlier this morning, my son. Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and scourges every son whom he receives. Then it says a few verses later, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Lesson five. God is sovereign, even when painful consequences come into our lives. I should say, particularly when painful consequences come into our lives. God is sovereign. God is at work, working his plan, his way. And the sixth lesson, God's judgment is always a merciful judgment to bring us to repentance. Because that is the next step. Rebellion leads to the rod. The rod leads to repentance. Look at Judges 3, verse 9. We see the same thing in every cycle. When the sons of the Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the sons of Israel to deliver them. The key word here is that they cried to the Lord. Who did they forget? Verse 7. You wake? Who did they forget? Verse 7. God. Who did they cry to in verse 9? God. By his discipline, by his correction, God brought them back. God brought himself back to their minds again, and they cried to the Lord. And this theme is repeated in every cycle. Look ahead to verse 15 of the same chapter. But when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them. This, this crying to God, it's, it's not just a weeping because life is bad. 
It's not just a weeping because you're hurting. This is a, the Hebrew word has the sense of a heartfelt cry from the heart. It is a cry of confession and repentance. Glance ahead to Judges 10.10. Yet another cycle. We see the same thing again, but it explains it so well. Judges 10, verse 10. Then the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord, and here's what they cried. Here's the content of their cry. We have sinned against thee. For indeed, we have forsaken our God and served the Baals. It is a heartfelt cry of confession and repentance. When things don't go our way, when we come under the discipline of God, we can respond in one of two ways. We can cry out with what is called worldly sorrow because it hurts. It's no fun. When you get a spanking as a child, you can cry out with worldly sorrow. Or you can cry out with godly sorrow. Worldly sorrow, says Paul in 2 Corinthians 7, leads to death. Godly sorrow leads to repentance and life. They're crying out with godly sorrow, and in every cycle, that leads to restoration and rest. Look at Judges 3 again. Verses 9 through 11. Restoration and rest. When the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the sons of Israel to deliver them, Othniel the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. You can read all about Caleb in the books of Moses. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel. When he went out to war, the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, so that he prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim. Then the land had rest forty years. Again, notice we see the complete sovereignty of God in every cycle. Who raised up the deliverer? The Lord raised him up. Same phrase, Judges three fifteen. When the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them. Not only does God raise up the deliverer, God empowers the deliverer to do his work. Did you notice what it said in Judges 3.10? The Spirit of the Lord came upon him. God's Spirit is empowering him to do this job of deliverance, and then the Lord gives the victory. As it says also in verse 10, the Lord gave Cushan the archvillain into his hand. Chapter 6, that story of Gideon. It begins by telling how the angel of the Lord came down and spoke to a scared, reluctant man named Gideon. But by verse 14, we find out that this angel of the Lord is actually the Lord himself speaking to Gideon. At every step of the way, God is sovereignly working. God gave them into the hand of the enemy. God raised up the judge. God empowered the judge. God gave the victory. God gave the nation rest, in this case, for 40 years. And so we've seen the cycles of the book of Judges. There are seven cycles described, chapters 3 through 16. Each one begins with rebellion. 
Rebellion inevitably leads to the rod of God's discipline. The rod of God's discipline brings about repentance. Repentance leads to restoration and rest. But this is not an unending circle. It is better understood as a downward spiral. Because each cycle, the the situation gets worse and the consequences last longer. And how does a downward spiral usually end? Crash. A downward spiral ends in a crash. And that's the point of the book of Judges. It just gets worse and worse and worse. And if you read through these Judges, they start off from what we can tell as as pretty godly men. But by the end, the Judges themselves are so often failing. To obey God and his word. And it ends in a crash. God created us to live by his precepts. When we ignore these precepts, we will end up hurting. We'll be living life holding the wrong end of a chainsaw. Now, beginning in chapter 17, the book shut shifts from these cycles of the Judges to two scenes from the book of Judges. The cycles usually cover many, many years, sometimes generations. The scenes cover a few days or a few weeks. The cycles tell us what is happening to the whole nation. The scenes show us what is happening in the lives of individuals. Just as there are horrible national consequences when we fail to obey God's word, there are horrible personal consequences. The scene beginning in in chapter 19, the second of the two scenes, is one of the most graphic, horrific, terrible stories, grisly stories found anywhere in the scriptures. But it's part of all scripture, inspired by God and profitable. For doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. It's, it's part of what Romans 15.4 that I read at the start says about those things which were written in former times are written for our instruction. That through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So follow along. It's a little bit of a long story, but stay with me. and Let's see if we can discern what God is telling us with this graphic story from Judges chapter 19. Now, it came about in those days when there was no king in Israel that there was a certain Levite, a priest, a man of God, should be anyway, staying in the remote part of the hill country of Ephraim who took a concubine for himself from Bethlehem in Judah. But his concubine played the harlot against him and she went away from him to her father's house in Bethlehem in Judah and was there for a period of four months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak tenderly to her in order to bring her back, taking with him his servants and a pair of donkeys. So she brought him into her father's house, and when the girl's father saw him, he was glad to meet him. And his father-in-law, the girl's father, detained him, and he remained with him three days. So they ate and drank and lodged there. Now, it came about on the fourth day, When they got up early in the morning and he prepared to go, and the girl's father said to his son-in-law, Sustain yourself with a piece of bread, and afterward you may go. So both of them sat down and ate and drank together 
And the girl's father said to the man, Please be willing to spend the night. Let your heart be merry. Then the man arose to go, but his father-in-law urged him. So he spent the night there again. On the fifth day, he rose to go early in the morning, and the girl's father said, Please, sustain yourself and wait until the afternoon. So both of them ate. And when the man arose to go, along with his concubine and servant, his father-in-law, the girl's father said to him, Behold now, the day is drawn to a close. Please spend the night. Lo, the day is coming to an end. Spend the night here, that your heart may be merry. Then tomorrow you may arise early for your journey, so that you may go home. But the man was not willing to spend the night. So he arose and departed and came to a place opposite Jabus, that is Jerusalem. And there with him were a pair of saddled donkeys, and his concubine was also with him. When they were near Jabus, the day was almost gone. And the servant said to his master, Please come, let us turn aside, this, turn aside into the city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. However, his master said to him, We will not turn aside into the city of foreigners who are not the sons of Israel, but we will go as far as Gibeah. He said to his servant, Come, let us approach one of these places, and we will spend the night in Gibeah, or Ramah. So they passed along and went their way, and the sun set on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. They turned aside there in order to enter and lodge in Gibeah. When they entered, they sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took them into his house to spend the night. Then behold, an old man was coming out of the field from his work at evening. Now the man was from the hill country of Ephraim, and he was staying in Gibeah, but the men of the place were Benjamites. And he lifted up his eyes, and he saw the traveler in the open square of the city. The old man said, Where are you going? Where did he come from? And he said to him, We are passing from Bethlehem in Judah to the remote part of the hill country of Ephraim, for I am from there, and I went to Bethlehem in Judah. But now I'm going to my house, and no man will take me into his house. Yet there's both straw and fodder for the donkeys, and also bread and wine for me, your maidservant, and the young man who is with your servants. There's no lack of anything. The old man said, Peace be to you. Only let me take care of all your needs. However, do not spend the night in the open square. So he took him into his house, and he gave the donkeys the donkeys fodder, and they washed their feet, and ate and drank. And while they were making merry, behold, the men of the city, certain worthless fellows surrounded the house, pounding on the door. And they spoke to the old owner of the house, the old man, saying, Bring out the man who came into your house, that we may have relations with him. Then the man, the owner of the house, went out to them and said, No, my fellows, please do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not commit this act of folly. Here's my virgin daughter, and here is his concubine. Please let me bring them out, that you may ravish them and do whatever you wish. But do not commit such an act of folly against this man. But the men would not listen to him. So the man, that is the Levite, seized his concubine and brought her out to them. And they raped her and abused her all night until morning. Then they let her go at the approach of dawn. As the day began to dawn, the woman came and fell down at the doorway of the man's house where her master was until full daylight. When her master arose in the morning and opened the door of the house and went out to go on his way, then behold, his concubine was lying at the doorway of the house with her hands on the threshold. And he said to her, Get up, let us go. But there was no answer. Then he placed her on the donkey, and the man arose and went to his home. When he entered his house, he took a knife and laid hold of his concubine and cut her into twelve pieces, limb by limb, and sent her throughout the territory of Israel.
And it came about that all who saw it said, nothing like this has ever happened or been seen from the day when the sons of Israel came up from the land of Egypt to this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak up. Why do you suppose such an absolutely horrible, graphic, brutal story is in the Bible? It's there because it tells us how terrible the depravity of mankind becomes when everyone does what is right in his or her own eyes. This moral relativism without God leads to a moral and sexual depravity of almost inconceivable nature. It begins with a Levite, priestly man, man of God, taking a concubine for himself, doing what is right in his own eyes. It continues, verse 2, with the concubine playing the harlot, committing adultery, doing what is right in her own eyes. By verse 22, they're on their journey back home. The men of the city are pounding on the man's door, demanding homosexual relations with the Levite, doing what is right in their own eyes. The man pushes out his concubine to them, doing what is right in his own eyes, probably saving his own skin. We're not told exactly when she dies, but apparently the next day as he's taking her home or something, or maybe that morning, she's dead. And so he cuts her body up into 12 pieces, doing what is right in his own eyes, sending it out to the 12 tribes of Israel as a call to war against the tribe of Benjamin, where all this happened. David Jackman, again, a very fine commentary on the book of... Judges and Ruth has some very fine perception on what this all means. A society that reduces love to lust will not long have any residual respect for human life. Other people become mere objects. Human life is expendable and cheap. So a baby in the womb becomes the fetus. It, not he or she. And a woman has the right to choose to do away with it if it is inconvenient. If old people increase in number and become a drain on the state, then let the state's medically approved agents put them out of their misery. Abortions and euthanasia on demand are symptoms of the same disease that surfaces in rape, crimes of violence, the mental cruelty, petty tyrannies, and personal violence that characterize so many homes. We must not be surprised to find child abuse, incest, robbery with violence, and murders increasing. If God is dead, said Nietzsche, then everything is permitted. It's all perfectly logical. That's what happens when every man does what is right in his own eyes. The book of Judges begins in chapters 1 and 2 with the people of Israel praying to God to ask if they should go up to war against the Canaanites. The book closes, chapters 20 and 21, with the people of Israel praying to God, asking if they should go up to war against their own people, the tribe of Benjamin. They do. 40,000 men of Israel die. 25,000 men of Benjamin die. And only 600 men from the tribe of Benjamin survive. That is the result when every man does that which was right in his own eyes. And so the book concludes with those sad words. 
In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It's a very sad book. But is there any message of hope and encouragement here for those in Christ? Romans 15.4 Through the hope and encouragement, through the scriptures, we might have hope and encouragement. Well, in conclusion, here's some hopeful message, hopeful lessons from the book of Judges. Hopeful lesson number one. God is sovereign and God is good. Remember how we saw God working in every cycle? He gave them into the hands of their enemies. He raised up the deliverer. He strengthened the deliverer. He gave the enemy into the hands of the deliverer. He empowered the judge. He gave the victory. God is good and God is sovereign in every cycle. As we move into the book of Ruth, hopeful lesson number two. Even in the bleakest of times, God is raising up a redeemer. God is working often behind the scenes, often very quietly, but with great purpose. The book of Ruth could begin with the little word, meanwhile. It doesn't. It begins with another phrase that means exactly the same thing. Remember that wonderful sermon Andy preached from Genesis 37.12? Meanwhile, the book of Ruth is a meanwhile book showing us what God is doing in the bleakest of times. Hopeful lesson number three. Jesus Christ is the greatest and final judge who rescues his people from their sins. Every one of these judges, imperfect men and women that they were, is a shadow of the great judge that is coming. Just as God raised up a deliverer in the times of the judges, in Jesus Christ, God sent his son to be the savior of the world. Romans 5a. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, while we were in rebellion against God, just like the people in the days of the judges, Christ died for us. God raised up a deliverer in the days of the judges. God has raised up the great final deliverer and judge, the Lord Jesus Christ. Hopeful lesson four. Be quick to repent. When you feel the conviction of God, when you know that the discipline of God has come upon you, be quick to repent because that's when God brings the blessing and the restoration. Be quick to repent. Hopeful lesson number five. Remember the Lord every day. Remember the Lord every day. At the start of every cycle, the people forgot God. They forgot all that God had done for them in bringing them out of Egypt. They forgot the manna in the wilderness. They forgot the water coming out of the rock. They forgot all the lessons of the previous cycles and how the Lord delivered them. Remember God Every day. Hopeful lesson number six. Be thankful every day. Because thankfulness is a great way to remember what God has done. Hopeful lesson number seven. And last. Reflect on the great patience and mercy of God. Even when we rebel and sin and fail time and time again, God continues to love and to discipline, and to bring consequences that his people might repent and return to him. If you ever think that you have failed God too many times, read the book of Judges again and have hope. 
These seven cycles may very well imply that there's no end to God's mercy. No matter how many times it happens. Seven times or seven times seventy times. God is merciful. God brings his people back to himself. That's the book of Judges. Come back next week for the little book of Ruth. And we'll find out what's happening meanwhile. Because God is always at work for good. Let's pray. Whatever things were written before were written for our instruction that we might have hope. God, I pray that the scriptures would remind us of the importance in our own lives of obeying your word, your precepts. And Father, for each one of us here, myself included, if there are ways in which we are neglecting your word, if there are ways in which we are ignoring your commandments, I pray that we would be convicted. And I pray that we would repent. I pray, Lord, that we would be encouraged that you are the God who saves, that the great deliverer and judge, the Lord Jesus Christ, has come, and he has rescued us from our sins. And I pray that we are encouraged that the season of rest and restoration that will never end is coming through the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is true and right and good. Thank you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the living word of God. Amen.